Well, good morning. Greetings from Wake Forest, North Carolina, which is near Raleigh. Um, we are we are so glad. My wife and I are so glad to be here. Ten years ago, we sent the crafts and knights to D.C. And our hope and our prayer was that God would use them to create a body that loved Jesus very much. And so you are the answer to our prayers. And we are so thankful. You, Even as I'm here this morning, our church in Wake Forest, I'm confident is praying for you. We continue to do that. We know that you are in a difficult place, in an important city. We trust that God will use you greatly here. But as... um. As Joey alluded to, or Daniel 1, we'll be in Philippians 2 this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, you're welcome to. And I'd like to pray for our time. So bow with me if you would. Lord, have mercy now upon us. May may my words serve only to exalt yours. Give us ears to hear and glad hearts to grasp and delight in and to obey that which you are bringing to us. Jesus, we pray in your great name. Amen. Amen. So, I'd like to do a little exercise first. Just quick, take a glance around the room. Seriously, just look around the room, see who's here. Um, because I have a question that I want you to think about with me. Um, who's the least important person in the room? Who is the least important person in the room. It's not a trick question, but it is a tricky one. Um, Beyond that, it is an extraordinarily important question for each of us to answer. The unity of the body of Christ depends on how you answer that question. The mission of the church depends on how you answer that question, how faithfully you will follow Christ Depends on how you answer that question. Your ability to obey God's commands depends upon it. If that isn't enough, the favor of God upon your life depends upon how you answer that one peculiar little question. Who is the least important person in the room? As I I said, it's a very, very important question. So how should we answer it? Who really is the least important person in the room? And let's just, just for starters, it better not be me, right? Because who wants to listen to a sermon from the least important person in the room? So, so it better not be me. Um, who is it? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's one of the custodians that's here this morning. Maybe it's one of the kids. Um, what about you? Could it be you? Could you be the least important person in the room this morning? See, that's why it's such a tricky question. Um, at some level, deep within us, there is a real resistance to the idea that it could be me, right? Couldn't be me, not me. Can't be me. I've got a PhD, right? I'm, I'm on the management track. I'm on the way to the top. Couldn't be me. Um, surely it's not me. I'm too smart. I'm too talented. I'm too popular. I almost forgot this one. I'm too humble. It can't be me, right? So we all have reasons why it surely isn't me. It's a tricky question, but it is so, so very, very important. And that's why I'm glad that the Apostle Paul answers this question for us in Philippians 2. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant or you could say more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's it's me after all, right? It's me, Paul says. I am the least important person in the room. Wherever I go, whatever room I'm in, Paul says, it's me. At least that's the perspective that he is about to press on us with all the theological weight that he can bring to bear. We need to think, we need to consider that I am the least important person in the room. And, And we are not good at this. We don't do this naturally. It's not how we walk into a room. Um, especially, I think, if that room is your home. Um, so there's a pattern over the years. Uh, we've, we've raised five children together. There's a, there's a pattern that I've observed in my home. It drives me nuts. It's called blame shifting. Um, if you've never experienced it, then you don't have children. Um, but it, it goes like this. One child has messed up in some regard. Um, they are caught in the aforementioned affront. They're confronted with it, and the blame shifts from them to someone else in the room, right? Drives me nuts. Drives me doubly nuts when one of my children tries to shift the blame to me for their their irresponsibility. So um, it goes like this. Excuse me? Did you just try to slide responsibility for your lack of responsibility to me? Would you like to rethink that? I give them a chance to recant, right? Recant or die is kind of the way that that, that, that works, works out. Um, so at this point, as a father, I am powering up to restore order to the kingdom, right? This is what's, this is what's going on at this point in time. And there's something about the teenage years that really hone the art of blame shifting, um, I have five kids, and at last I'm on my fifth teenager. And there's a man named Paul Tripp. He wrote a book, a really wonderful book about parenting teens. He called it The Age of Opportunity. And sometimes it feels like the age of the opportunity to send them to boarding school. But that's not what he meant. What he meant is it's an age uh, to learn how to love well and show grace. I get that. But what having teenagers has been for me, honestly, is an age of opportunity <clears throat> to see my pride and my entrenched unwillingness to consider my children as more important than me. So, if you are a parent, don't parent out of pride. Your kids hate it. Your spouse hates it. And when you are clothed and in your right mind, you will hate it. But more important than all of that, God hates it. The book of Proverbs puts it as clear as can be put. It simply says, I hate pride and arrogance. So says the voice of wisdom. And here you are, right? You're at the nation's capital, one of the great cities of our world. You're doing really important work. You're hanging around with really important people. Maybe your career is taking off. 
and your mom is proud of you and your spouse is proud of you. Your kids are proud of you and all of a sudden you are proud of you. And that's when you get this question, this all-important question, who is the least important person in the room dead wrong? Who's the least important person in the room? Surely it's not me, right? Couldn't be me. So much depends on our getting this question right. Um, So, Look at Philippians 2, the very first two verses, and let's begin to unpack all that depends on embracing the role of the least important person in the room. First, Paul says, as clear as he could say it, that the unity of the body of Christ depends upon this. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So essentially here he's saying, if your faith is real, if you truly know Christ, then this is what I want you to do, the Apostle Paul says, more than anything else. This is what will really bring my joy in you Philippians to fullness, he's saying. Nothing could bring me more joy than this. Be united. Right? He says it over and over and over again. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. He's pressing it from every angle. Be united. Okay? And this is a, this is a big deal to Paul. It needs to be to us. And honestly, if you read the rest of the book of Philippians, their divisions don't seem very significant. Um, but they are enough for Paul to address them head on in the most powerful way that he possibly could. So in in verses 3 and 4, he explains what unity is and what it must be built upon. In a word, humility. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or important than yourselves. Let each of you not look, uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So do nothing out of selfishness. Or vain conceit. Zip. Okay. Nada. Zilch. Zero. It is never permissible, never excusable, and if you'll pardon the double negative, it is never not sin to act out of selfishness. Selfish pride will divide your church. I've seen it, and many of you have seen it, sadly, too. That's why so many church splits these days are not about theology. They're about methodology, which if I can put it baldly, they are about whether or not I get my way. And so the way you answer that one simple question, who's the most important person in the room? The very unity of the body of Christ depends upon it. And as a result, the mission of the church depends upon it. Um, If you back up just a couple verses, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, 
I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So Paul understands that for the gospel to prevail against whatever shape the opposition to their faith was taking in Philippi, they had to be united, he says. They have to stand together. And to be united, as we saw in verse 4, they must be humble. And so let me link these two things explicitly for you. If the church is to be missional, she must first be humble. And at this point, there's a modern proverb. You won't find it in your Bible, but it's more than apropos. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. Right? So if the pastors or the women's ministry leaders or the elders or the deacons or the community group leaders are not modeling a humility that answers the question we are asking today with the simple pronoun me, it's me, I am the least important person in the room, then it's increasingly difficult for the church to answer that question that way. So um, I guess I'm like the, am I like the first guest speaker for this drill? Okay, so here's the way I understand that guest speakers work typically. Um, there are two categories of people who are invited to speak when your pastor's out of town, right? Um, there are people who are famous, they write books and stuff like that. And then there are the people who live close enough to have really low travel costs associated with them. And so the fact that I drove up from North Carolina in my Prius on a tank of gas, you know which category that I put in. <laughs> Cost like ten bucks for me to drive drive up here, um, but you know um, maybe maybe before um, Nathan gets back on his sabbatical, they'll run out of speakers. They'll run out of of people to to do what I'm what I'm doing this morning. So um, they'll ask you. They'll call on you to get up here and. And to speak and to open up the Bible and, and to teach it. Um, now, you live here, so you know why they picked you, right? You're part of that local travel costs group. But they picked you, and so um, you prepare your message. You're working on it, and you get your three points and a poem together. And you're ready. You're, you're, you're getting ready, and you start to daydream about, about what it's going to be like. And you... Um, you, you get up here, the auditorium is packed because somehow word leaked out that you were speaking today and your boss is here. And people from Embassy Row are here because you are speaking and you're on your A game. It's amazing. And even Joey is awake and on the edge of his seat, he's, he's on everybody. Nathan is FaceTiming in so that he can watch you preach on on Sunday morning and you get through two of your points and time is up and you say I'm sorry I can't finish someone in the back stands up and they say give us point three in the poem and so you look at Joey and he motions you on and you you finish and revival breaks out and DC is transformed and you just move from the category of low travel cost to famous right now, most of your dreams probably are different than that. Your daydreams are probably about work. Maybe they go like this. The boss is away. Call you in to address a major crisis, like maybe a government shutdown. And you solve it. 
And they carry you out on their shoulders. Huzzah! Right? They're cheering. And you're, they're carrying you around, maybe down, downtown. And they give you an office in the Capitol building and you become the national consultant for political crisis and both parties ask you to run for president. You know, those kind of daydreams. <laughs> Nightmares, daydreams, whatever it would be. So here's the thing, to dreams like this, the Apostle Paul simply says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Absolutely nothing. As Jesus put it, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Arrogance, or more subtly, as Paul put it, selfish ambition is a blight on the church. It's a blight on Christian leadership because it's a contagious blight. And the whole church is often infected and then unity is compromised and then the mission of the church is in jeopardy. See, even the world knows that you cannot claim to follow Jesus and be full of yourself. The mission of the church depends upon the humility of the church and especially, I think, of her leaders. Your ability to truly follow Christ also hinges on how you answer this same bothersome question that I keep flogging you with this morning. Look at verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So who is the least important person in the room? And if you answer that question with, with any other answer than me, then you simply cannot follow Jesus Christ fully. You cannot. Because to follow Christ is to be humble. It is to put others' interests above your own, to consider them more important, to get low, as some have put it. Just like Jesus did. So Paul traces here this theme of of humility, of taking the lesser place as the driving force behind Christ's entire life and ministry on earth. He goes from incarnation to crucifixion. And though Jesus was holy God, he did not cling to his rights as God. He was not grasping and selfish, but rather he became nothing. He says he emptied himself. This is a beautiful, mysterious thing that Jesus has done. And much theological ink has been spilled and will be spilled on what this means that Jesus would empty himself in trying to wrap your three pounds of brain around the mystery of what theologians call the kenosis, the self-emptying of the Son of God. Don't miss the point, right? He humbled himself to the extreme. In these verses, there are a cascade of humility as Christ descends from the king's throne in heaven to a life on earth wrapped in the garb of a servant, a slave. He went from being worshipped by all the heavenly beings to being ignored by all of earth, save a few, and those few who were even aware of him would either reject or abandon him in the end. 
And if that was not enough, the Lord of life would taste death for us. Even, Paul says, death on a cross. Cicero was a Roman statesman from the time of Christ, and this is how he described crucifixion. He said it was a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He went on to say, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. And yet the very Son of God would go down in the record books of his day as a common criminal who would suffer that very abomination. He would be nailed to a cross, even for us. He became the least important person in the room. He became the least important person on the planet. He would serve us all. Why? For our good. I love the way the Apostle John puts it. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So the answer to this one very troubling question determines whether you will truly follow Christ or not. So if you preach or pray or care for the poor or solve the government shutdown or whatever good work you do, if you don't do it humbly as the least important person in the room, then you are not following Christ, no matter what you do. To follow Christ is to be humble. Our unity, our mission, our ability to follow Christ, and you can add to that our obedience, are all wrapped up in this question. Look, look at verse 8 again. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was his humility that fueled his obedience. The most radical act of obedience in history, the king of kings in servant's garb, Dying a criminal's death in obedience to his father was fueled by the most radical act of humility. Putting our interests above his own is such a massive understatement as to be almost inappropriate. He laid down his life for us on a cross. And in like fashion, our obedience hinges on our humility. We must consider others to be more important. Otherwise, at some point, God is going to ask you to wash somebody's feet that you think should be washing yours. And what then? See, as long as there is somebody less important than you in the room, there is a very good chance that you have an obedience line that you will not happily cross. It might sound like this. I don't do laundry. I don't do toilets. I don't do this or I don't do that in the office. It's not my job. See, Jesus had no such line. Not even the cross. So our unity, our mission, our ability to follow Christ, our obedience, and one last thing, the favor of God upon our life depends upon our answer to that question. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, because of his extreme humility, which fueled his extreme obedience, God gladly exalts him above all others. The favor of God comes upon, of God the Father comes upon his Son because of his humility. The pleasure of God the Father pours out on his humble, obedient Son because God loves humility. He loves it in his people. First Peter reads like this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me show you from the pages of the Old Testament real quickly um, how much God loves to pour out his favor on those who humble themselves before him. There's an Old Testament king named Ahab. Perhaps you've heard his story. Um, from 1 Kings chapter 16, we read, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Debat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal, a false god, and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, an idolatrous thing. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So the sins of Jeroboam, it says, Ahab committed. Those were the idolatrous erection of a golden calf. You may remember it from earlier in 1 Kings. and Urging the people to worship them. And to Ahab, idolatrous worship, worshiping other gods, it was a trivial matter. It's no big deal. Um, then he marries this lady named Jezebel. Not a great name for your daughter, if you're expecting. Okay, He marries this lady. And she is part of a political alliance, alliance rather that would allow landlocked Israel to have coastal access, among other benefits. The tragedy is that Jezebel's father was the high priest of their pagan religion, and she would have been and turned out to be the ultimate poster girl for, for being unequally yoked, right? Um, Ahab would compromise his faith explicitly for politics, security, prosperity, and power. And as a direct result of this marriage, he, the king of Israel, became an active Baal worshiper, worshiping a false god, building an altar and a temple for this false god. And then there's that last verse that sounded really strange. It said, he laid its foundation at the cost of Ibiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub. And some scholars think that this was what was known as the foundation sacrifice. Um, modern archaeology has uncovered this. It, probably what was involved was children um, were probably infants, dead or alive, placed in jars and inserted into the masonry, propitiating the gods and warding off evil. I could go on and on. Ahab was a bad dude, okay? 
He was the worst imaginable. He was a man of Hitler-esque proportions. Um, And in 1 Kings 20, he and Jezebel kill a man in order to take his property. And this is evidently the straw that breaks the camel's back in God's eye. And the prophet Elijah comes, pronounces judgment upon a from God. And I want all of this is so that you can see what happens next. Watch what happens next in 1 Kings 21. And when Ahab heard these words of judgment from God, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly or meekly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tisbite, the prophet, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because Ahab has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. So in response to Elijah the prophet's message of judgment upon Ahab from God, he humbles himself, and you can see it. It's in the way he dresses. It's in his character. He's meek. And so now, after this unparalleled mountain of sin and evil, God shows mercy to Ahab. Why? Because of his humility. What kind of God is this? Who shows mercy to the likes of Ahab. This is so merciful to almost be offensive to us. This is crazy mercy, beyond undeserved. It is unfathomable that God should be that merciful. And it is Ahab's earnest humility that is the trigger. How God loves humility in his people and how he will honor it. God opposes the proud, but oh, how he loves to lavish grace on the humble. It's true for Jesus. It's true for Ahab. And it's true for every one of us somewhere in between. How we answer our question this morning will greatly impact God's favor upon our lives. And so before I leave you, I'd like, I'd like to just think a little bit about how do we get that kind of humility? How do we, how do we follow Jesus in this way? And let me suggest just a couple of things that might be helpful. They've been helpful for me. Uh, first, assume the posture of a servant. Okay. And we need to train our souls in this matter. So take on a new task, preferably a demeaning one. One that you think is beneath you. Around the house, toilets are always a good place to start. Okay. Um, as is caring for young children in the middle of the night and laundry. Okay. You get the idea. Take on a task. And if you're married, take on a humble act of service that's meaningful for your spouse. Because if you're married, after all, they're the most important person in your marriage, right? So assume the posture of a servant in your home and where you work and let God form your soul by that practice in the ways of Jesus. The second thing I would suggest is learn how to see your sin as big. Um, What I mean by that is my sin 
has to matter more to me than your sin matters to me. So we live in a day where we may see as many as 5,000 ads a day. Um, They tell us 5,000 ads a day, and these ads all tell us that we need better. We deserve better, newer, faster, shinier, higher, deafier stuff. Okay, We deserve that. We are a worthy consumer. That's the message that we hear 5,000 times a day. We're worthy. And we have to recalibrate where we self-assess like the Apostle Paul who considered himself to be the chief of sinners, not the worthiest consumer. Being keenly aware of your own sin, the gravity of your own sin, fuels humility. Think of it like this. Um, Let's say that this little ball represents my sin. Pretty small, kind of smallish. That's my sin. But let's say that your sin is, oh, how about the size of one of those air vents up there in the ceiling? That's your sin. This is my sin. I think you guys are in trouble. I just want to let you know that this morning. Okay? If that's your sin. But what I want you to realize as we go through this is that if my great concern is my sin, no matter its scope and size relative to anyone else, if I'm concerned about the gravity of my sin and the sorrow it does to my Savior, and I focus on it, and this becomes my focus, I'm concerned about this. Honestly, I can't even see your sin. I can't see it because my concern is my own. I'm not comparing with you. I'm not belittling you. I'm not judging you. My concern is my own sin above yours. To be able to consider others more important, you have to be able to say, my sin matters most. That is what God wants me to be concerned about. It is a greater concern to me than your sin. And what I found really helpful in this to me is simply the daily practice of the confession of my sin. This is how I end my day. I I pray through a psalm, I give thanks for God's mercy throughout my day, and I confess any known sin. And that practice helps me um, as I establish myself humble before God who gives mercy even for my great sin. And so I hope those those two little things... um, your primary concern being your own sin and not judging others first. And taking the posture of a servant will be helpful for you as you grow in humility. But um, above all else, to become like Jesus in this matter of humility, you must grasp why he humbled himself so. Even that he would die on a cross. And the scriptures use these simple words. He died there to bear the sins of many. Um, So that we whose sins he bore could know God as adopted children. That God would adopt us into his family. And so in this act of mercy on the cross, you must fully hope if you want to be free of the burden of your own sin and follow Jesus and be like him in his humility. That's where it all starts. That's the most important first conversation to grasp 
what Jesus has done in his great humility on our behalf. So, let's end where we began. Who's the least important person in the room, in your eyes? Who's the least important person at your office, in your next class, in your home, here, in this room? Paul says, we need to consider others more important than ourselves and do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, just like Jesus. And if that has not been your attitude, um, then I would suggest that perhaps a first great step of humility is something called repentance, uh, where you simply acknowledge before God, I have been prideful. I've been prideful in these particular relationships, in these particular ways, and you confess those for what they are, they are sin. Nothing less, nothing prettier, nothing more excusable, they are sin. And so in just a few moments, uh, your worship team is going to come and lead us in worship. And during that worship, if God has pricked you about your pride and the need to follow Jesus in humility, just take a moment and bow wherever you are and confess your pride and welcome the humility of Jesus that brings grace greater than your sin. Let me pray for you as, as we close. Father, have mercy upon us this morning that this word would not fall on, on deaf ears. God, spare us going back into the relationships with the people we love the most, just as arrogant as we were before. May we ever increasing, day by day, humble ourselves even as Jesus and consider others to be more important than ourselves not looking out for our own interests merely, but also for the interests of others. And Jesus, we acknowledge this is your great work. We need you to help us. Help us in this by your spirit and by your word, we pray. Amen.